What's on the menu today? Important information you can't afford to live without. The following is the audio version of a video released at peakprosperity.com. Visit peakprosperity.com to watch the video and to find other insightful content such as articles, discussion forums, and exclusive subscriber-only content. Hello everyone, Dr. Chris Martinson here and welcome to this episode. Really excited to bring you this episode because as you know, or maybe you don't know, a lot of my work pre-COVID was talking about what's called the three E's, the economy, energy, the environment, in something called the crash course. Today, I'm going to give you a little bit of an economics tour, as it were, because it's really important that you know this. Now listen, I'm not an economist, but I do play one on the internet. I'm going to talk economy with you. I'm going to talk finances. You have to understand this context. By the way, just so you know, there is a part two to this, which is going to be very different. We're actually going to be talking about something that's uh, pretty different from what you're going to hear about in part one. But these are the important conversations we need to be having. These are happening over at Peak Prosperity. So find that, navigate over by the link or down in the description below. You can find a link straight there. All right. So today's conversation, really important topic. And let's go there. We're going to be talking about how money is created. So you have the context you need to understand what's coming next with inflation, and with a probable economic um, accident, be the politest way I could put it at this point. As always, you should come away from this presentation having learned something really important. And today I'm going to cover just a few quick pieces so that we can put into context this inflationary impulse that's coming right now. It's going to steal your wealth. It's going to be very, very difficult for a lot of people. And it's coupled with a legit supply shortage for energy the master resource. If you don't understand these things, hey, they could bite you. So context is everything. Let's go there. I want to talk about what's actually going on in the world. So, hey, I start here. This is the one chart to rule them all. Uh, this is the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. What's a balance sheet? That's a place you park your assets and liabilities. And in banking world, the Fed has a bunch of things on its balance sheet here. Um, which it calls its assets. Its assets are somebody else's liabilities. That's how banking works. So what does all that mean? First, let's look at this chart in red, total assets on the Federal Reserve balance sheet. Why is this important? Because this is the headwaters of the Nile. If you want to know where all that Nile Delta water came out, you know you have to go to the headwaters of the story. This is it. This is the headwaters of everything. Central banks are the headwaters of, of the whole currency slash monetary story. So decoding this chart a little bit, looking at millions of U.S. dollars on the left axis over there, what's a million millions? Well, that's we're, now we're talking trillions. So over here, I'll get my drawing tool out real quick so we can go through this. This millions of dollars in millions, so this means... That back here, before the great financial crisis, where we see this first giant spike right here, we note that the United States Federal Reserve had a balance sheet that was around $880 billion. So what does that mean? It means that for all of United States' history, it took about $880 billion of fresh, thin air money printed out of thin air, which is what the Federal Reserve does, to operate the whole country. Every road built, every bridge, every train, every airline built, every person who ever attended school, every back rub given, everything that this country did for uh, the first several hundred years of its existence only required this much 
money to be created. And that's complicated, but I explain all of this in the crash course, how that works. But it works basically like this. The Federal Reserve creates currency out of thin air. It puts it into the system, and then the system does things with it. Mostly it takes that and loans it out to other people and amplifies it and creates even more currency out of it um, with corresponding debts. But the bottom line here is that in that great financial crisis, the Federal Reserve decided, you know what, we'd, we'd be really unfortunate if Citibank went out of business or we lost J.P. Morgan. We can't have that, can't have the banks go, go under. So we're going to print as much new currency in a few months as the country used in its first 250 years of founding and development. And it did, and it threw it all into the financial system. And that's that first spike right there. But then it got addicted to that. You know, it should have unwound all of that and come down like this, but it didn't. It's like found it very hard to undo, and it tried to undo a little bit of it here in the stock market. Its precious stock market started to go backwards instead of upwards, and they didn't like that. So they printed more, and they tried again to get a little out of this. They couldn't do it. The stock market reacted badly, so these are called taper tantrums. So instead of tapering, they ramped up a huge amount of, of currency creation, and then they did this, and they were trying to come back down again even before, which is this red line where we see that COVID came in, even before they had to give up and they were starting to print, 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 and then COVID came, and you look at this vast explosion. That was just to keep everything sort of operating, um, and that by which I mean mostly the, the banking financial system. And then this has been the story ever since. That is an extraordinary amount of currency creation. And of course, when the Fed creates currency like this, it doesn't give it to you or me. What do they do with it? Well, they give it to BlackRock and they give it to Citadel and they give it to JP Morgan and they give it to all the financial firms right there on Wall Street principally. And then what do they do with it? Well, they do what banks and, and uh, equity firms and things do. Um, they go out and they buy things with it, like stocks and bonds. In case of uh, BlackRock, they go out and they buy homes and things like that. If you understand this one chart, you understand everything that's happening with respect to the United States and the globe with wealth inequality, why the stupid rich have become even stupider rich, you know, billionaires become more billionaire. All of it starts here. These are policy decisions. And if you want to understand why one generation has been thrown under the bus, that's the younger generations, and another generation has been bailed out in terms of their home prices and their stock portfolios, which primarily be the older generations, this is it. This is it. It's all policy decisions. And if you understand these policy decisions, you understand the impacts of them because these aren't just monetary policy decisions with kindly old Jay Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, going, oh, you understand our mandate is to create full employment and price stability. <laughs> no, their mandate is to rescue the banks and make the rich richer, period. That's what they do. So if you understand this one chart, you understand a lot of what's going on. So let me decode that for you a little bit. Um, Recently, under one of uh, the episodes we'd put out before, Derek Seifert wrote, I feel blessed that I knew of Chris years earlier from the Crash Course series. He's the straightest shooter out there in this space, extremely generous with his time. Thank you, Derek. Knowledgeable. And wh whatever he earns through these efforts is nowhere near the value contained within them. The most important work I ever did in my life. Way, I mean, just maybe COVID's going to rival that someday, but the Crash Course is this body of work. It's thinking that I put down and I gave it away for free. I, I could have sold it for a lot, but I decided I wanted to, the world needed to have it. So that's what Derek is referring to here is this thing called the crash course. So good news. 
if you like my dulcet tones and you like learning, uh, you're going to love the crash course because, uh, well, here's what it is. I put together three big ideas, energy, economy, and the environment. And there's all these related ideas around that. Energy has this concept of peak cheap oil embedded within it. We've got exponential money growth, which is this extraordinary concept that once you learn it will change how you see the world. We've got this global credit collapse. It's going to have to collapse someday. I I show how that's true when I go through the economy. We've got a national failure to save. We've got demographics to consider. But on the environment side, we have both waste streams, pollution going in, and resource depletion, non-renewable natural resources coming out. Now, why is this important? And by the way, all of this is contained in a variety, well, 28 chapters now. And each one of these chapters is anywhere from three minutes to, I don't know, maybe up to 20 minutes long. And you can see here that I cover a lot right at the front. Where do I start? Growth versus prosperity. What is money? Money creation. The banks. Money creation. The Fed. A brief history of money. Quantitative easing. Inflation. How much is a trillion? Debt. Assets. Liabilities. And it keeps going. About the first 10 chapters or so are just about money in the economy. Really important grounding that I think everybody should have. Because once you have that context, then you can understand what's happening. It's the same as with COVID. If you don't understand preparing the terrain as a concept, if you haven't looked at the base data under the various supplements like vitamin D and or zinc or things like that, it's very difficult to understand the rest of what's going on with COVID. So same thing. Uh, I just unpacked this whole thing. You can find it all here at peakprosperity.com slash crash course. And Each one of those is an individual video chapter that you could watch if you so chose. The point here is that I don't think you can understand what's happening today or predict the future without what's called a systems view. You can't look at just the economy in isolation, although that's all that economists and the Federal Reserve do. They just look at it as if it's its own thing because the economy is actually a subset of the natural world. And... As well, we can also say that within the natural world or within the economy, nothing happens without energy, right? So if you have no food energy, you don't create a lot of new awesome things in your life. Uh, plants that are have no sunlight don't grow and they die. Uh, economies that don't have oil pumping through its veins are a lot less complex, a lot less interesting, a lot less um, dynamic. So you have to look at all three of these things together. That's what the crash course does. It really takes a look. And this is all, trust me, really important to what's going on today in particular. So I wanted to ground there. So here's one of the concepts I talk about. I ask this, and this is a course I teach at Berkeley every year for a sustainability uh, lecture I give there. And this is a, a question around, well, what is wealth? What do we mean by wealth? Well, if you ask somebody, or maybe in your own head, you think, what is wealth? You're instantly thinking currency, right? You're thinking whatever currency your wealth is denominated in. Could be euros, could be dollars, could be yen, could be pounds. Doesn't matter. You're thinking um, wealth is actually the currency, but it's not the case. So I'm going to deconstruct that really quickly because this allows us to understand what is happening with respect to inflation that's going to come and take your wealth away. So what is wealth? This is an idea set that comes from um, the Small is Beautiful, the E.F. Schumacher Foundation. They talk about wealth in uh, three forms, primary wealth. Let's start there. Primary wealth is rich soils, clean waters, abundant fisheries, thick seams of ore or coal or oil in the ground. That's primary wealth. 
So we could easily imagine some countries that are rich in primary wealth end up becoming wealthy nations, or can, if they do the other things right in these stories. But a country that fundamentally has no natural resources is going to be fundamentally poorer. And so we would uh, not be confused by this 200 years ago if you wandered into my town or any city and you said, who's the wealthiest person here? They would lazily wave towards the person who owned the most land, right? Because land 200 years ago was the primary source of all wealth. Why? Because that's where we grew the food. That is the primary input uh, energy source for a human is the food. So if you had a lot of land, you could create a lot of wealth. You were probably wealthy. But if your soil gave out or you mismanaged your land, your primary wealth would erode. Okay. Well, primary wealth is great, but it doesn't, by itself, doesn't do anything until humans come along and do something with it and convert it into secondary wealth. So the ore becomes steel, the fish become, come out of the ocean and they come onto the plate. Uh, you know, things make it to your table and or to your consumption. So secondary wealth is the means of production and it's the conversion of primary wealth into secondary wealth. I mean, rich iron ore is awesome. Steel piping, even better, right? So this is secondary wealth. Now, what is what we think of as wealth is actually typically just tertiary wealth. Tertiary wealth are things like stocks and bonds and futures and options, puts and calls, currency, Bitcoin, um, things like that. This uh, picture here is a picture of um, a former trading floor at UBS, big bank, where they were trading all of these tertiary wealth, these paper promise tickets, these claims. So that's what tertiary wealth um, is mostly, is people trading promises, but they're really claims on primary and secondary wealth. So let's imagine this. Oh, and by the way, it doesn't look like that anymore. Here, here's a new picture of tertiary wealth. It's just all computers now, right? Um, look at them. This must be a down day in the market. They look very sad. Uh, so, but what, what, let's imagine now, let's imagine you're Bill Gates. You have a, you know, several billion dollars. Why is that wealth to you? Well, because you can take that to somebody else and you can trade it for something you want. But let's imagine you're Bill Gates. You have all of his wealth. And I'll give it to you on a hard disk. All of his wealth is now contained on a, on a little USB fob, right? It's in a portfolio. Says he's got it. We put him on a rocky island with nothing else on it. It's just a barren rock in the middle of the desert, in the middle of the ocean. Well, what is his wealth worth to him at that point in time? Nothing. Your primary wealth and secondary wealth are the true actual expressions of wealth. The tertiary is just a claim that allows us to get access to that primary or secondary wealth. So this is a concept that's really important to understand that real wealth is primary wealth is secondary wealth. Your home is a real uh, sort. It's, a, it's an actual physical thing that, that has real tangible value, protects you from the elements, keeps you warm, keeps you cool, um, gives you a comfortable place to exist. Food is tangible, real wealth. Money, currency, stocks, bonds are claims on those things. Even a stock is a claim on usually a productive asset, a, a real productive secondary asset, a factory, um, something like that, an enterprise that's converting primary wealth into some form of secondary wealth. Now, the issue is, is that because the Federal Reserve, with its, its constantly pumping more and more and more financial claims into the system, it's been fostering a lot of non-productive effort out there in the world. It, it fosters uh, people who use money to make money. That's called financialization. There's a lot of that 
huge amounts of productive effort in this world are expended by really brilliant people to figure out how to use money to make money. But they don't actually make any wealth in that process. They create more claims and they figure out how to siphon across those claims. And that actually is not an awesome thing uh, because those intelligent people are doing something fundamentally non-productive. All right, what is money then? We can say that money or what we currency is a claim on wealth. It's not wealth itself. It's a claim on it. It's an important claim. I'd give you that. But it's a claim on wealth. Well, then what's debt? Well, actually, debt's a claim on future money. So if I have a mortgage debt of $400,000, say, well, then that I don't owe all of that $400,000 today. I owe it over, owe it over the next 15 or 30 years, depending on the mortgage term. So that mortgage is actually, a, that debt I have is a claim on money in the future. So currency is a claim on money today, in this ex claim on wealth today, in this moment. And debt is a claim on future money, which itself is a claim on wealth in the future. All right. So that is money. Why is this important? Because you always have to keep your claims in balance with the real wealth. We've seen this over and over again in history. Um, societies, cultures get in big, big trouble when their money or their claims gets out of balance with the real stuff. It can even happen in a, in a gold or silverback system. Remember uh, um, in the 1500s, Spain figures out how to sail across the oceans and take a lot of gold from other cultures, and they brought it home. They're like, we're wealthy. We're super wealthy now. And all that happened was they brought all this gold back into their country. The real wealth didn't change. The claims, which is the gold, actually changed, and all of a sudden they experienced extraordinary inflation. And I put this on a balance because two things can happen. You can get too much money, which drives inflation compared to the real stuff, or you can have what the United States had in 1929 through the 30s, which is your money supply collapses, in which case you have too few claims, and you get what's called deflation, and the value of real things relative to money rises extraordinarily. So balance. We always just want balance. This is my primary critique of the Federal Reserve is they've driven us wildly out of balance and it can't end well. It never does historically. It's an important concept to understand. And of course, your newspaper, MSNBC, never take you down this path. Why? Because uh, I guess it's dangerous information for people to have to understand that things have to be in balance and that our erstwhile leaders are busy driving things wildly out of balance. That's what they're doing. As well, in the crash course, I'll take you through the idea of currency creation or what we call money creation in our fractional reserve banking system. I'm not going to take you through all these steps, but the summary is, is that for every $1,000 that somebody deposits in a bank, up to $10,000 of new loans can be loaned out by the bank because rules. It's just a rule we have. It's not like a law of nature. It's something we came up with as humans. So that's kind of how the system works. I wish it was actually that that uh, quaint. It doesn't work that way anymore. In fact, banks can loan out infinite money these days because the, the reserve ratios have gone to, to nothing. But the bottom line summary of this particular point here is that we have this much actual currency in the system and we have this much debt in the system. And because of that mismatch, there's a rule that comes from that, which is that the debts constantly have to keep expanding or the system of money we have gets, well, it gets collapsy. It starts to want to collapse. So given that, that 
my critique of our money system is if you have a money system that's either expanding or collapsing, you have a bad money system. And that's the one we have. Uh, I can't fault people for coming up with it in 1913. Must have made a ton of sense back then when the world seemed infinite and there were no edges. Today, we don't have that world. And that's the world I'm about to take you into is where we are in this resource story. It's really critical to understand. By the way, I know I'm going through this quickly. If this at all appeals to you, you're getting little dings like, maybe I should know this. It's all contained right there in the crash course, and you can step through it at your leisure. So let's go back here. Instead of calling this the Federal Reserve balance sheet, I'm going to say this is excessive claims. We went from $800 billion to $8.5 trillion in just a few years. Nothing like this has ever been seen in human history. Ever. I mean, there have been hyperinflationary episodes in the past, but in terms of the number of claims being manufactured by the Federal Reserve and other central banks, we've never been through a period like this. So keep a journal, extraordinary times. Let me show you the impact of this and let me tell you um, what happened. So as I mentioned before, and the reason I threw this up, somehow currency gets into the system. That's what that first thousand dollars is. And somehow you end up with a lot of new currency down at the bottom. There's a thousand dollars to begin with, but there's ten thousand dollars by the time the banks have finished amplifying that and loaning it all out. So what would you think might happen if we took eight and a half trillion dollars of initial currency, remember headwaters of the Nile, and we push that into our river system, what are the banks going to do with that, do you think? Well, they're going to amplify it. So this is the actual M2 is a broad measure of money. I, I like to use the word currency instead, um, as according to uh, Mike Maloney, he's right. Money has three qualities. Our currency lacks a couple of those qualities. Um, so it's not really money. It's currency. It's printed out of thin air as much as we want. Uh, so this is showing here again. Now we're in um, billions of dollars. So what's a thousand billion? A trillion. So this would be showing that um, here when the crisis started, we would say we had about 16 trillion trillion, 16 trillion dollars of currency in the system, and it exploded to about 21 trillion dollars just in well, let me put it in context here. These blue bars here show uh, the amount of money that was created in about a year and three or four months. And that blue bar all the way there on your right, so the one closest here, that shows uh, the, the scale of that. And I took that same bar and then I moved it just down there to that lower part to show that all of the currency ever created by the United States throughout all of its history through the year 2001 is equivalent to the currency created by the banking system in the last 15 months. Now, how does the banking system create three, four trillion, was that uh, 16, two, four, five trillion dollars? It created five trillion dollars of brand new currency. Five trillion dollars of new currency. Oh, hey, uh, why are the billionaires getting more billionaire? It's explained right here. It's a policy. It was a decision by the Federal Reserve to make the billionaires more billionaire. It's just, it's a system. All right, the currency supply has exploded like that. Um, well, okay, so if the banks are flush with $5 trillion in currency, what are they going to do with all that? Oh, you know what banks do, right? They loan money. That's what they do. So we would expect to see, oh, global debt hits a record $296 trillion. Um, this is a very recent article here, and we can see that there's been about $35 trillion, $40 trillion 
dollars of new debt creation uh, in the past year or so here. So the Fed puts in about three trillion. The banks create five trillions of current five trillion of currency, and somehow that turns globally into about forty trillion dollars of new debt. That's the system. That's great as long as you can constantly have an explosion in real wealth because these are all just claims. What is that forty trillion? It's claims on future money. How much money is out there? Currency is out there. Trillions more. What does that stuff mean? It means nothing if you can't buy stuff with it. So that's why when we see our global supply chains collapsing, falling apart, that's pressure one. And we have all these claims out there. That's pressure two. What do you get for that? Well, you get rising prices. Now, I wish that it was just a story of debt and currency because those two things are easy to understand. We both have maybe currency in our pocket in terms of physical hard cash. We get it. We might carry debts uh, in terms of auto loans or student loans or household loans, so we get it. What do we not get as easily is this concept of liabilities. A liability for you might be you have a teenage daughter who's getting ready to go to college. You know you're going to have to pay those college bills, but you haven't yet. It's not actually a debt you have, but it's a liability you know you're going to carry. When we look at the liabilities of the United States, just these are IOUs. They come in various forms right here. So there's honest-to-God government debt that's like treasury bonds and stuff like that. There's private debt, household loans, student loans, auto loans, stuff like that. Then there are pension liabilities. That's pensions that owe money. They know they owe it, like your daughter going to college. They know they owe it, but they don't have the money actually in their kitty at this point in time. So it's a liability. There's other mandatory government debt. And then, of course, there's Medicare and Social Security. When we add those up and we express those as a percentage of GDP, which would be like saying, how much is your credit card debt compared to your income, debt to your income? This is at the national level, so we're looking at national debts compared to income, which is gross domestic product or GDP. Express that as a percentage basis. What do we find? We find that the United States, um, as of the time Bridgewater put this together, was like in 2016. It's only gotten worse since. Uh, its debt to liability, it, its liabilities to income or liabilities to GDP was standing at 1,100%. No country's ever dug out from a, a, a hole deeper than about 260%. And that was England back in the 1800s uh, after the Napoleonic Wars. They had a very, very high level of debt, but they had this little thing called the Industrial Revolution that sort of helped them clear that out. That's the world record holder. All the United States has done and many other countries have done in the past 40, 50 years is we've just piled it all up and kicked the can down the road. So the can kicking is happening, is happening, is happening. We all know about it. We all know it's a problem. We all know it's unsustainable. When you look at a chart like this, your only question, there's one question you should ask and answer, which is we know it's not going to be paid back. That's easy. The only question is who's going to eat the losses? Now, a direct way to eat the losses is for your pension to call you up and say, yeah, that money we said we had for you, you don't get it. A less honest way to do that is for the government to inflate and create a lot of inflation and say, hey, you're still getting that $1,200 a month. Unfortunately, you can only buy a cup of coffee and a newspaper with it, right? Um, That would be the less honest way. So there's two ways to clear out a debt like this. One is default. Hi, you're not getting your money. And the second is by inflation, which is your money is worth a lot less. Those are the only two ways that you can make this graph resolve. Well, there's a third way, which is you could have a level of economic growth that's never been seen before in world history for which you would have to have 
completely untapped amounts of natural resources to go after. We're not at that part of the story. That part of the story is over. Um, we found all the easy oil, the easy lithium, the easy everything. That's, we're now now to the hard part of that story. Not over, but we ain't at the easy part. This chart, to resolve economically in an easy way, we would need to have easy levels of resources. Don't have that. That's just the nature of the, of the story right now. All right. So if you're a central bank and you're facing this calamity and you've got these massive, massive mismatches, what do you do? Well, there's only one way out of this from the banking story is you drive interest rates down. You got to drive them down because what you can afford at 10% rate of interest, which is here, and these are uh, various world governments. So we've got uh, Germany, the European Union, UK, US. Um, these are the uh, they, you can see all of our interest rates are roughly in line with each other. So it's, there's no real difference between any of these countries at this point. Same story because central banking is a global story. Same story everywhere. But here we are at 10% rate of interest. And you can see we've been driving it down and down and down and down and down and down and down. It just keeps going down. And it's effectively close to zero at this point in time. Now, why is that a response? Well, what you can afford at a 10% rate of interest is completely different at a 1% rate of interest. If you're buying a house, you would understand your mortgage interest is a very big determinant on your monthly nut you got to carry to pay off that mortgage. General rule of thumb is for every 1% your rate of mortgage goes up, you can afford 10% less house on a dollar basis. So if you could afford a $500,000 house at 5% rate of interest, you could probably only afford a $450,000 house at a 6% rate of interest. It's just how it works. So this is one response. The central banks are like, oh, people can afford less and less and less because there's less. What do we do? They've been driving the interest rates down. Well, we're kind of out of this story right now because we're pretty much at zero. So there's not a lot of runway left there. Meanwhile, the central bank here in the United States, every time the, the stock market wiggles a tiny bit downward, it just rides in and rescues it. It's been just rescuing the stock market over and over and over again. They're actually rigged markets. I understand the Federal Reserve's got, you know, they're in a box and they only look at the, at the stock market and other markets and they only care about them going up. That's been their model for a long time here. In case that's not obvious, I, I put a, a ruler on this. We see this all the time. I've, I've seen hundreds and hundreds of rescues. The day before this ruler was applied to this chart, the markets were down pretty heavily. And then mysteriously and magically in the overnight markets, things called futures rise and then this thing blasts up and it always is ruler straight. That's how you can detect a rigged market. Um, and we've been seeing a lot of those lately. Excessive currency always equals inflation. That's what happens. Remember that balance, real wealth and currency? When those get out of balance, when there's too much currency, you see inflation in the prices of things. So do we see inflation right now? Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh, yeah. Um, so first, this is uh, Javier Blas here uh, from Bloomberg has a really nice... Uh, looks at commodities really well all the time. Find them on Twitter. The Bloomberg Commodity Spot Index, a basket of 23 energy, metals, and agricultural raw materials, um, jumped an all-time high, passing its peak in 2008 and 2011. It's over here at an all-time new high. So these are the raw inputs, uh, particularly energy is the big thing. Energy is not just another commodity. You know, you say, oh, you know, there's cotton and copper and corn and hog bellies and oil. Uh-uh. You got all those things and then you have energy, oil, natural gas, coal. Energy is the master resource. If you have energy, 
you can make all those other things. If you don't have this energy, you can't make these other things. If you don't have these other things, you can still make energy, right? So energy is the master resource. We need to understand it a little better. That's why in the crash course, I break it out as a whole separate study of inquiry to go into. Because once you understand energy, a lot of things clarify. They get really clear. So we see this inflation now is just feeding through the system. I see articles like this literally every single day now, sometimes twice a day or more. DHL and national, you know, international carriers raising rates to shippers by 5.9%. Uh, just as matches a FedEx rate. Uh, this is going to jump on January 1st. Uh, FedEx just raised the rates. All, all the shippers are having to raise rates because they have all kinds of problems. They can't get trucks because there's a shortage of trucks. There's a shortage of drivers. The fuel costs are going up. All sorts of issues going on. So, hey, uh, that's a pretty hefty increase right there. I don't think that's going to be the only one we're going to see from them. I think we're going to see a subsequent announcement. Hey, what happens with uh, UK energy? This ought to be top news. This is huge. Look at the price of natural gas here. Look at this now. It's an equivalent. If you bought natural gas and compared it on a BTU, which is just an energy basis to oil, it's the same as if oil was trading at $230 a barrel right now in the UK. I wish this was um, talked about because this is really, really important. In the UK, if you are not talking about this, you are in trouble. So let's wander over. Let's see what is being talked about. Oh, this is a front page from BBC. Let me see. Anything natural gas? Nope. Something about Facebook here. Uh, the son of the ex-Philippine president uh, is going to run. For, oh, he's going to run for president. Six hours without WhatsApp. Super important. Is this the end of osmosis learning? That's critical. Uh, the most iconic showdowns in cinema. Valuable stuff. Um, a little something from the U.S., something about Tesla, something about Adele. This is what's being presented to people in the U.K. is the most important stuff. This is your context in the U.K. Excuse me. By the way, that's the same context we'd see in a lot of other countries. This energy crisis is so ridiculously important, and they're not talking to you about it. Why? This is called nudging. We've covered this in prior episodes. This is what the system which, you know, we no longer have like true independent journalism. The BBC is merged with the state. They have nudge units with psychologists. They want you to be nudged in a certain direction. So they want your attention here and they don't want your attention here, even though this is the most important thing you could possibly have on your radar screen. And by the way, it's not just the UK. This is a series of charts here across Europe. Europe is in deep doo-doo this winter, really deep trouble. So Dutch gas, look at the prices on this stuff. I mean, this is a pure, true parabolic rise. Uh, coal, which is a, can be swapped out and used instead of natural gas to create electricity, look at that rise. A German power, which is an amalgam of all sorts of things, including coal costs, natural gas costs, and this other stuff called um, carbon emission Carbon emission costs are spiking. And look at these. This went from 20 to 60. That's a 300% rise. This went here from 50 to 200, pretty much. So we had a fourfold rise. 400%. These are extraordinary. This is absolutely the most important thing. Why? Because energy touches everything you do. It's the master resource. If you don't understand this, a lot of shocking things are going to happen. Uh, as well, we look at natural gas storage in Europe. It's way low trend. It needs to be way up here. It's way down here as it's entering the winter months. Of course, it goes through the seasonality where you draw it down through summer and then you build it up as you get ready for winter and then you draw it back down again. It's supposed to go like that. So 
uh, where you would want to be is you'd want this blue line to be about where the red line is. It's not. It's way below trend going into the winter. And, um, you know, that, of course, would be solvable uh, to some extent, except that the uh, just recently looking from September to October uh, 4th, we see that Russia has cut its exports to the EU by 20 percent in just those couple of weeks right there. So there's less coming in. European natural gas is in decline. They don't have it in storage. Russia isn't shipping it. You can't possibly import enough by LNG to make up the difference. Um, And so that's why you see explosions in prices for natural gas like this. And it's going to have enormous impacts. Just huge. As well, uh, oil, Brent oil, which is a measure of global oil, is up well over 100%, about 120% over the past year. Uh, Cotton. Cotton's just, I don't know what's going on with cotton, but people want a lot of cotton lately. Um, It's just spiking like crazy here. Um, Again, coal and uh, here looking at it just as a global indication, not just looking at it in Europe. It's just spiking like crazy, obviously. It's up uh, about 300 and what's that? 340% in the past year. Um, That's a pretty big increase. All right. So uh, with all of that said, Uh, There's going to be some pretty big impacts coming. If you want my full uncensored stuff of what I'm thinking about these days, of course, you know, there's things I can no longer share here. This all feels pretty safe uh, for YouTube. But other things that I do like to talk about increasingly, we're starting to do that over at Odyssey. So you can see my Odyssey channel there. I would advise you to go over there, uh, log in, subscribe, click. Uh, That way, if you ever, for whatever reason, say, I haven't seen Chris here a couple weeks probably because I'm over there. Um, So that's something that you need to do. And by the way, why did I bring you through this little very, very brief condensed tour of the crash course, money, creation, wealth, to bring you into this inflationary side? We are about to experience an extraordinary explosion in inflation, and you have to have the context to understand why that's going to happen so that you can decide for yourself what steps you want to take. There are a lot of steps people should be taking around this right now in order to protect themselves protect their wealth and things like that. But I tell you, these shocks that we're looking at right now, this isn't just energy gets expensive in Europe. This is energy becomes unavailable in Europe, potentially. So that's a really big deal. And that's going to have enormous impacts all over the place. And with the big pressures that you need to understand, massive amounts of currency creation, which has led to massive amounts of debt creation, which is all smashing into actual shortages of the things we most need to run our economy. Hopefully that all resolves itself in some way, but betting person would say these things collide. We're going to see massive increases in prices. Those are going to have huge knock-on effects for you, your life, your business. And uh, for the business people out there watching this, this would be the time to be really hedging as much as you can, building deep inventories as much as possible, and getting yourself ready for an inflationary shock. And as well, you're going to be experiencing more and more of your workers coming to you saying, my electricity bills just exploded. I need a raise. Um, You know, look at the price of food. I I need a raise. These are going to be things that are going to be coming along for you. So whether you're on uh, the employer side or the employee side, you're both going to have to start getting ready for having these conversations. It's coming. It's already here. But my prediction is it's got to get a little bit worse before it begins to ease off. And by the way, everything Jerome Powell said about inflation being transitory, I called BS on that at the time. It was clearly obvious it was BS. He knew it was BS. Rings to mind that old Solzhenitsyn saying, which is, um, we knew they were lying. They knew we knew they were lying. We knew they knew that we knew that they were lying. 
We all knew it. Jerome's a liar, liar, pants on fire. Uh, and by the way, that erodes confidence in that institution. And once you understand what the Federal Reserve is, you understand that confidence is the only game they actually have to play. Our money system is a confidence game. And it requires that we all have trust and faith that they keep that balance between the claims and the real stuff. That is their one and only job. They failed at it miserably. And now they're lying about it. And I think they're a little bit panicky and scared and scrambling, and I get it. But by the way, they've had decades to figure out how not to be this way. It didn't have to be this way, but it is. And that's the world we live in. You need to know about the context. Watch the crash course if you want the full context, and then we can have a deeper conversation. All right. Remember, we're going to be talking about all kinds of things back at the website. And uh, as is usual, I'm going to have to show this to you because um, it's a very important topic. But as we know, we live in the land of the free, home of the brave. Some things can and can't be talked about, even amongst friends. So this is what we're talking about. If you're interested in this, come by Peak Prosperity. Got a special offer for you, and you can find the link to that also down below in the description. Love to see you there. It's been fantastic, all the people who've come over to join the most important conversations we can be having. All right, that's all I have for you today. See you next time.